Fall is a time of remembrance, a time to look back on the year and understand the decisions that you've made. This is a good start, but the knowledge of our actions isn't enough. It doesn't promote enough growth. To grow, we need to think about the future and how our actions will impact it. This season is going to focus on fall as a concept and as a reality. And one of the tenets of fall is self-reflection. In this episode, I'm going to reflect on where we are today and how our current trajectory might pan out in the years to come. I'm John Sherburn, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the third season of the Nightcap Podcast. Before I get into the episode, I want to tell you guys first how you can find me on social media and get a hold of me off of the podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Jonathan Sherburn. Find me on Twitter at John Sherburn. And as a special thing for this season, I'll be releasing show notes for each episode. It's kind of like the behind the scenes on what I'm actually reading off of versus how much of it's just me talking. So you guys can kind of understand um, how the show is made and how my research is done. And, and that's that for this little intro. So let's get into the actual episode. Today's episode is on decades specifically from now until the 2040s. Over the period of the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to see a lot of change. The world as we know it is going to disappear, replaced by something in some ways better and potentially in some ways worse. This is all right, as this is the way of the world. If you look at any time period, you're going to find that slowly things get better and new issues arise that are worse and we have to find a way to socially, economically, and culturally get through them. And that's the biggest challenge we face right now in the world of the internet, in the world of overconnectivity. It's increasingly difficult to find common ground with your fellow human being. More people are being pushed to the fringes to radical solutions because none of us feel like we're actually being represented. And none of us feel like our futures and the futures of our children are in our grasp. We're cramped, we're confused, and as a result, so many people are lashing out. This season is autumnal. This season is about the fall, and a lot of things are happening right now. Traditionally, the fall is a time to spend with your family. It's a time to say thanks for what you have and expect a good harvest. It's a time to look back. But this fall is the first fall of a new decade, of a new time. This fall is a time for us to look forward at the future, and on this season of the podcast, that's exactly what I'm going to do. As much as I talk about concepts of the past, traditions of fall, and more, I'm going to talk about our future and how important it is for us to all have an active role in it. So today, I'm going to start off by talking about the 2020s, what to expect in this decade based off of my own opinions as well as research that I've done, and we're going to get there together. There's no way to adequately discuss the current state of affairs without considering the impacts they have on our future, how our vote, our social commentary, the lessons we teach our children will impact how our future is formatted, how our future is made. And today, I'm going to focus on three periods, as I've said, using three different lenses to analyze them. And for starters, I'm going to talk about the 2020s, the decade that we're currently standing in at the cusp of. And I'm going to use concepts that I think are most likely to show their faces before the end of the decade. I'm going to start off with something easier, something that I'm going to speak about in later episodes, so I'm not going to go into too much detail with. I don't want to scare you guys. This is big. 
I've just been reading off a script for like five minutes. I don't like reading off a script. It scares me. freaks me out. So I'm going to get a little comfortable. Hope you're all comfortable and you're ready to talk about the internet. The future of the internet. The future of communications. The internet, we've been told, is the biggest accomplishment of the 21st century. It's the, the factor that's driving social, economic change. It's... It's making our lives better. It's making everyone more connected. It's letting kids play all the Angry Birds. It's a good time, or so we're told. And the pluses, obviously, are clear. We're living in an age where people have the opportunity, quote, opportunity, to be more intelligent, to be more connected, than to be able to access more than ever before. We're standing at the cusp of the future, the ability to integrate, the ability to be integrated at all times. And the benefits of this are obvious. But there are downsides as well. There are downsides if we're not careful, if we're not focused on what the impacts are. As of now, we don't know. We don't know the impacts. We don't know what it's like, what having Instagram lives all day are like, what checking your Twitter feed all day is like, what texting your significant others all day is like. And like I said, I'm going to be getting into this in a later episode, so I don't want to go too far. But I think I'd be remiss I was talking about the future of this decade without talking about the future of the most important thing in our lives right now. As sad as that sounds, we have almost no ability to impact politics. We have almost no ability to impact climate change. We do have the ability to go on the internet and read and talk, and it's what we spend most of our time doing, folks. And so as a result, I think that we're going to find the internet becomes restructured in the next couple of years. I think we're going to have one of two major changes, things that are really unavoidable. And they're opposite sides of the spectrum, but it's completely up to us what happens. But I think by the end of the decade, we'll kind of come to our conclusion. Are we comfortable with an unregulated, unruled internet where you just spend as much time as you want on there? Or do you want some checks and balances? And this isn't a, a law thing. I'm not talking about anything being forced upon the people because I don't think we'll ever get to that point. But we have two options right now. We will most likely, in my opinion, either see a major decrease in social media and internet usage, or we will see a shift into total reliance on it for all of our day-to-day needs. And this is not up to businesses, this is not up to governments, or anything of the sort, because it's all dependent on what we want. And that's a thing I think we underestimate. In terms of politics, in terms of buying power, we are in control. There's so many things we don't control, but if no one buys a new iPhone, iPhone will change up their strategy. They'll look for what we want. Now, everyone says, oh, you know, I'm just one man. I can't change the world. All I got to do is just sit here and buy my iPhones. Everyone's, everyone's, everyone says that. But together, if we all decide, and I think we're kind of getting there. Everyone, I see so often nowadays, everyone's like, I don't want to use my phone today. I raced Instagram. I'm not going to call her back. I'm trying. I just told my boyfriend that we're not going to talk as much. And this is, that sounded like I'm being a woman, being a man. Uh, I don't want to use my Instagram. I'm not going to post as much. Everyone's doing that. Everyone is, is trying to get off their phones. You see stuff like, uh, there's so many documentaries that talk about this kind of concept. And so we have that option. If we'd like, if we'd like. Now, the other option, the one I'm scared of, not because it's a worse option, but because we're not even going to know if we make that decision until we've made it. The other thing I'm scared of is that we're going to be so focused on other things, important things, things that arguably might be more important, like equality, like qu- climate change, 
like the future are you know are going to are we going to head towards socialism are we going to double down into capitalism etc those are interesting issues but if we focus all of our energy on them and not on our communication we're going to be defaulted into having constant connection we're going to see complacency that eventually leads to these companies are just going to continue to pump out technology. If we allow them to and we want them to, they're going to make everything from phones to sex robots to flying cars to whatever the hell. They're going to keep making more because that's the job of science and tech and the private sector. Its job is to push more change and more diversity and make better things. So as long as we want them, it's going to be the default. It's like you opt in to organ donation instead of opting out of it. It's going to be the same thing. Unless we say, hey, we don't want this. Well, I guess it's the opposite thing. If we, <laughs> it's the opposite thing. If we say, hey, we don't want this, they'll, tell, they'll say no. But if we don't say anything, we're going to keep getting it. And if we're not thinking about it, we're going to wake up in 100 years with chips in our brain and say, hmm. People are going to look back. Our grandkids are going to say, you know what? I wish. I wish they thought about this more, the impacts of this. It's almost too late. That's how I feel about social media and stuff. At a young enough age, I was given free reign of the internet that I made a footprint before I even was old enough to decide if I want a footprint. Now, with the way of the modern world and with the industry I'm in, in media, you don't really have a choice. And that's fine with me. But I know people that looking back would say, I wish I didn't, didn't have an Instagram back then because I posted some stuff that I just wish wasn't there or whatever, whatever have you. You can erase a lot of these things, but question remains, is it good for our development? And so I think that's kind of the first thing I wanted to talk about. The first thing that we might see change in the 2020s, if we let it. Now, with that being said, right now we're in a period of change. Disarray economically. It's 2020, it's coronavirus season. And as a result of that, we are struggling. Struggling to maintain work, to maintain stable income, and to have a job. We're Seeing people going into work less often, no more work. People are spending more time at home. People are spending more time on the internet. People are spending more time finding alternate means of money making, be it DoorDash or Uber or an Upwork account trying to get clients. There's more consultants and contractors than ever. And so I believe that we are looking at in the future, what will be a gig-based economy? There's going to be certain things that aren't, right? You're going to have your, your doctors maybe aren't, but maybe they will be. But most things are going to be, in my opinion, or a lot more than we see today, are going to be gig-based. And by that, I mean that more people than ever before are not going to be employed by a long-term, are not going to be employed for the long-term by a company, as opposed to there's going to be a, a patchwork of contractors, consultants, being used to create products, being used to create services. The negative, being used to create services. I think that gig economies are interesting. It's something we haven't really seen before. It's something that wasn't really even available to us until we got the internet. Because with the internet comes this ease of access where you can just post, post, post and see, oh, I want to do this, oh, I want to do that, oh, uh, I'm going to do this today, I'm going to do that today. You have that ability to communicate with people over vast distances. And I think there's a bloatedness right now in terms of work. We have a lot of people underemployed. We have a lot of people without jobs, especially right now in the year 2020. And so as we look into the future, I think we're going to see a lot of jobs go away. Unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot of jobs go away. And I'm going to get into that at some point. But I believe, but I truly believe that automation is one of the biggest things that we have to think about. 
Automation is something that's, again, going to come naturally if we let it. Robotics and AI are going to take over jobs. A big one that I've said is at some point in my lifetime, we're not going to go see a general doctor. Maybe there's going to be uh, there's going to be surgeons. There might still be specialist doctors that are around. But once we crack AI real well, there's no point in having a doctor. When you can have a robot taking your temperature, running your pulse, comparing photos of your face and your body to millions of other photos they have of other clients, taking in all of your at once, taking in all your symptoms that you're saying and running it against a database, that's so much more effective than a doctor. And so once we get to the point where we can do that, that's going to happen. And so we're going to see a lot of jobs go away. We're going to be left with jobs that have to do with creativity or heavy intellectual nuance that AI can't necessarily do. And this is going to have a couple of impacts. Cheapening labor is going to make it things become cheaper. And so you might see people have to work less, right? Anyways, so it's okay. But you're going to see a lot of jobs go away. So I think that a portion of our working class is going to disappear. And what's going to happen to those people? I can't be sure. But I think something like a gig economy is going to help with that. We're going to have people working part-time. Goods might be cheaper. Or they're doing some strange this work or that work. A bunch of other styles of creative labor. And I think creative labor is going to become so much more important. If this seems crazy to you, by the way. If this seems like it's something that you can't wrap your head around, there's no way that it's going to happen. Think about 50 years ago. Think about 50 years ago. People were working more. And I know it feels like we're busier now, but people were working more. People had different jobs, jobs you could never have today. You could be a single-income household. You're a factory worker. You work five days a week at the meatpacking factory, and you afford two kids and a wife. We can't do that anymore. And so things 50 years ago, the concept that both parents would have to work and 70% of people would still be living paycheck to paycheck seems, I'm sure, crazy. And yet here we are. And so looking into the future, things that might seem crazy, you know what else seems crazy? AI, but it's coming fast. And so I don't think we're going to transition completely into a gig economy by 2026, but I do think we're going to start to see that shift take place. We're going to start to see the impact that a potential gig economy would have. Maybe we'll shy away from it, maybe not, but it's something to keep in mind. I have two more points about what I think is going to be important in the 2020s. And the first, the smaller of the two, is the restructuring of higher education. I have an entire episode on my opinions on the educational system. It's kind of a short episode, but go feel free to watch it. It's a relatively recent episode of Nightcap Casual, which is part of my second season. And it talks way more in depth about my opinions on the education system. But if you'd like a re-up as well as some differing opinions as I'm talking about the future from the modern perspective, please give this a listen as well. The education system is extremely bloated, and it has been for decades. If you think about the average college student, they're taking on thousands of dollars a year in debt, and thousands is a low-ball answer. There are many people taking on tens of thousands of dollars a year. Loans they'll be paying off if they're lucky for the next few years, if they're unlucky for decades to come. And this is unsustainable. Every year, you hear more and more people getting upset about student debt. People getting upset about things like a lot of these college scandals that have happened recently where it's come out that people are paying people. There's people being paid off. There's people doing all this kind of shady stuff that we all knew about, but it's finally coming to a head. And so as a result, the school system is under so much scrutiny, and I think it's going to be close to having some major changes. If you look at the way schools work now, they are jack of all trades, right? Especially at a liberal arts college. Let's take that for example. At a basic liberal arts college, you're going to have like six or seven different schools. Colleges of 
English, colleges of journalism, colleges of mathematics and business and science and tech. And so you have these schools with so many different needs to be filled. They need 3D printers. They need Apple laptop. They need MacBooks. They need all sorts of different material. And yet most students are only using a fraction of that material. Most students are only using the materials in their major, and yet they're paying for an entire school. They're paying for all the food installations. They're paying for the track. They're paying for the theater program. They're paying for things that at a basic level, most of them don't need or care about. Now, we do all this in the name of the college experience. And the college experience is important. But that does not mean the college experience isn't going to change, especially if people start wondering how much less money they could spend. I think we're going to start seeing schools pop up or programs pop up that are independent. Programs where you're paying for your education. They're going to be smaller schools with less. They're going to have less they offer, but for a lower price. You don't live there. You live at home or find your own housing because, wink, wink, most of the time off-campus housing is at most the same price. At least it's cheaper. And so I think we're going to start to see people questioning, people saying, hey, do I still want to rely on stuff like this? Do I want to rely on the school system if I'm not getting jobs, if I have so much debt, if I'm undervalued? Our parents, my, my generation, Gen Z, millennial, their parents said, go to college, go to school. It's important because it's what they were taught and it's what worked for them. But I think a lot of people right now are learning that it's not needed, that school isn't necessary. And so I think that in the next few years, you're going to start to see some of that stuff reformat as people younger than I are wise enough to say, I don't need to go to school yet, or I'm going to wait. We're going to see admissions go down, we're going to see interest go down, and schools are going to figure out a way to fix that. And I think stuff like individualized, specialized schools are the easiest way to do it. And I think by the time the 2030s and 40s are here, we're going to have colleges working in a very different way, with a smaller percentage of students going and a smaller amount of programs, and I think it's going to be better. As much as the school system seems to be a mainstay, and education seems to be a mainstay, it's something that I think needs to change, and hopefully it will. The last thing I want to talk about in the 2020s is probably the most important. It has the most overarching grasp on the world right now. It's, it's honestly kind of crazy how important and popular this is, and yet most people don't think about it. I'm talking, of course, about populism. It is becoming so, and I, I, I'm using this word, haha, popular recently in so many countries across the world. And if you don't know what populism is, it is a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. This creates blue-collar or grassroots-style movements that attract voters that feel unheard. Does this sound familiar, folks? Does the concept of the voter being underrepresented or misrepresented feel familiar to you? Do you know anybody that's not going to vote this year? Or anybody that's, that's not excited to vote this year? Or anybody that feels like the people they're voting for don't represent what they want? Well, listener, I'll tell you something important. Everybody feels that way right now. Because, wow, yay, surprise, surprise. That's exactly what's happening. We're at a point. We spent the last, in, in America at least, we spent the last 20 years slowly being separated from the parties that we used to trust. The people that used to be, have our best interest in mind, the people that used to, to, to care, people that used to work for us have slowly, over decades, stopped working for us, started working for the system. 
This is to scratch their own backs. This is to maintain power, to maintain the status quo if we're looking at it bipartisanly. But the one thing that most politicians right now aren't doing is trying to make effective change. Any politician that you've seen switch aisles, switch sides, switch opinions a hundred times and back, those are people that are trying to maintain the status quo and roll with the punches of their constituency. Any person or party that you see that's claiming to have done so much for this marginalized group or this structure of power, when you look back, hasn't actually done that much. That's the same concept. And this is something that's happening, again, sorry if you're not from America, but this is happening in the United States on both sides of the aisle. You have conservatives and liberals, you have Republicans and Democrats, and both groups are pitting its constituents against other people in the American country. And while some of the things that both sides are saying are good points or true or whatever, so much of it is rhetoric and so much of it is fake. And as a result, you're seeing that this is a poll. 80% of people in general on both sides do not have faith in the government. This is not a partisan issue, people. And I think we're going to find that. I really hope that Joe Biden gets elected only because I think it'll show the populace that it's the same shit. Now, Donald Trump is a very specific man. He has very specific hurdles to jump through. Some people absolutely hate him. Other people just don't like him a little bit. But most people agree that he's kind of a crazy person. Not necessarily a bad thing for some folks, but as a general, as a general idea, he is very unique and has a very unique set of challenges and difficulties he brings into the office. But I think we're going to find that the world as a whole doesn't get that much better when we have someone else in the office. I think we're going to find that we have so many of the same problems in terms of big business, in terms of our economy, in terms of international relations. I think we're going to find that there's still so many issues in our country in terms of poverty and inequality. I think we're going to find that both sides don't have the answer. And we're going to turn towards something like populism. You see populism spreading across the world right now. Donald Trump in the United States, Boris Johnson, Brexit things in Britain, the alternative party in Germany. You see stuff like this happening in France, in India. You see it happening everywhere. And to get into some of the nitty-gritty about populism, there are two types. There is socioeconomic populism, which focuses on putting people against businesses, focuses on putting individuals against the cosmopolitan elite who benefit from, as some people would call it, the international capitalist system. This is something that you can see best in France and in the United States at this moment. There's also a cultural form that focuses on stuff like nationalism, race, immigration, this happens in the United States, but I'd say better ideas of this are in Germany and in India currently at the moment. The big impact of this, because populism has been around for hundreds of years and it's been popular for decades, the big impact is that right now there is more support for a populist party to be in office than ever before. And if we see a lot of populist elections, we're going to watch democratic systems fade away in favor of a people-oriented government, something with clear pros and cons if you think about it even just for a second but there are also some effects we might not be aware of until it's too late so for a moment let's talk about populism and to understand populism first we must understand the roots of populism it was big in the first half of the 20th century where war poverty disillusioned people from their systems of government 
This gave way to things such as fascism in Germany, communism in Russia, and more. And these things are not populism. I'm not trying to say they're the same thing as populism because I know I'm going to get some political theory people up my ass if I say that. But there is a very clear line between these issues. So many people right now, as a result of the internet, and I think there's some big, I think there are some real big reasons why populism has gotten popular. I think the big two are that we've seen governments lose focus in the recent decades due to just the money machines, due to war, due to international relations. We've seen governments move away from where they traditionally have spent. We've seen parties move away to where they're tra from their traditions. We've also seen something called the internet, and the internet's allowed people to communicate more than ever. So more people are communicating than ever. And so you're seeing more people unhappy. And so as a result, you're seeing more people turn towards stuff like populism because they're saying, look at all of us. All of us don't like this system. We want to change this system. And so as a result, you see people start to freak out. Right now, people are freaking out. And there's a huge boost for socialism in this country. I really don't think that people pushing for socialism are doing it because they've seen really socialist countries and they like them, or they've seen countries that are kind of socialist in Europe that work so differently than the United States and they have such different needs and say, no, no, it's a good idea. Some people do. Some people really think it would be a good idea, which is fine. I think there's pros and cons to socialist ideas. I think some of them should be adopted in this country. I think others would sputter and fail so fast it's not even funny. But I think more than socialism, people just want to be heard. They want change because they think that capitalism is too far away from them. And they're right. Most people don't benefit from a capitalist society. You may experience indirect benefits, but at the, at the same time, most people don't feel the personal, feet-on-the-ground benefit of a capitalist society. Sure, our economy might be good, and we have all these things, but most people are living paycheck to paycheck. They're not having trouble affording things like hospital bills and loans and debt. Most people are struggling right now. And so as a result, a lot of people are turning away from the capitalist system because they don't feel it's good for them. It's kind of amusing for me to think about far ends of both sides of our political spectrum here in the United States and abroad. All different types of people seem to have very similar views. Populism and socialism have been co-opted. They're both really hot-button terms that are unfair. Populists, a lot of times is associated with like far conservative groups. And socialism is so often, especially in the United States, considered a problem for the radical left. But both things are, seem very similar. They are people-oriented solutions. They disagree on how to get there. They disagree on the best methods. But they want the human being people to be heard. They want people to feel equal, people to feel accepted, people to have opportunity. And at the end of the day, both are struggling against the concept of authoritarianism, which is so popular in today's political spectrums everywhere. Authoritarianism is leading the way in terms of how the governments view their people. It is rule of law. It is there is a specific high class group that's controlling everything. And everyone else kind of has to just take it. And at most, we have half-assed elections where two-thirds of the population isn't voting. And a quarter of the population wouldn't even be able to if they tried because our system's not vamped up enough to take in all of the people. We're seeing so many issues in terms of even just the concept of voting that seems like it's out of our hands. What's the best way to get it back into our hands? Putting it in our hands. And that is why, in my opinion, populism is so important. Regardless of all this, it seems to me that populism, in any form, will be extremely popular in the coming years, in the next decade or so. 
people at a f- base level feel unrepresented. I will post in my show notes for today's episodes. A Gallup poll has been, a ga- Gallup's been polling for a long time, rating individuals' trust in their government, and there is a steady trend of the I trust my government answers going down and a steady trend of the I don't trust my government answers going up in recent decades across the board. On both sides, about everything from foreign policy to the executive branch and everything in between. And so I think as a result, we're going to see a lot more populist elections happen. We're going to see a lot more populist parties come up. We're going to see a lot more favor towards populism. Some people that might scare, some people that might be accepted, but I think it's something to keep our minds and eyes open to and open to the pros and cons of populism. I don't want to make this whole episode about populism, so please look it up. I'll post some links. Again, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I'm doing show notes for every episode. Uh, I'm going to have links to my website and I'm going to have a section for show notes for the Nightcap podcast. And this is pretty much going to show the behind the scenes. So it's kind of an exciting way for me to show you guys how my researching goes and what that is all about. So keep in mind that that's happening. Whew, that was a long first section, folks. I'm going to have to maybe re, re-up or maybe make a longer episode than I was expecting to make. The next section I'm going to do this relatively quickly is going to be on the 2030s. The 2030s, and it's not going to really be on the 2030s because there's not really a way to know what's happening in the 2030s, even less so than we know what's happening in the 2020s. But I'm going to use a different lens and a different style in analyzing by 2030 or in the 2030s things to be aware of. And I'm going to do that using quotes from extremely famous individuals. I'm talking economists. I'm talking politicians. I'm talking commentators on their opinions of the biggest issues that we're going to face in and around 2030. So. I'm going to start off with a man you probably know named Edward Snowden. This guy's an ex-NSA operative that famously told the world about the NSA and what collecting data that we didn't know about in the United States and then flee to Russia and has since had come back and forth and had done podcasts with people. He's written a book. He's talked about his experiences. And according to Edward Snowden, quote, the drowned cities of tomorrow will be founded on the conveniences of today. Electricity usage by data centers is enormous and expanding, threatening to top 10% of global electricity consumption within the next decade and to produce roughly five times the CO2 emissions of all current global air travel. As more power is required to cool these data centers, the warmer the planet will become, and as consumer electronics get cheaper and more disposable, they will leach our minerals into our groundwater, poisoning the future. To achieve sustainability, we need to treat technological change and environmental change as symbiotic. If more efforts aren't directed towards conserve, converting data centers into renewable energy and innovating ecologically responsible, recyclable machines and batteries, then the internet too will become a weapon of the rich, even more than it already is, a tool, to use, a tool used to seize and control ever more scarce natural resources. Huh. I think the most important thing about this is the, the part about treating tech and environmental change as symbiotic. What he's pretty much saying is something that nobody is thinking about is how much energy it takes to run all the electronics we have, all the electronics that are running all the time. And it's just more and more every year. And there's absolutely no checks or balances. And so in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to need to do one of two things. First off, we're going to need to find renewable alternatives. We're going to have to put money and time and innovation into how our electricity works. Because currently our grid is not capable of handling for a long term 
the type of data that we currently have running and the type that we're expected to continue to have running. I think that's absolutely huge. And so I think by the 2030s, we're going to see one of two things. We're going to see either a huge change in the way our tech is processed, or we're going to see people using less tech. This goes hand in hand with my opinion on if the internet's going to see a, a desurgence. Uh, and hopefully we see a desurgence if we can't figure out how to do it better. The next thing I want to talk about is from Andrew Yang, presidential candidate in the 2020 election. Interesting man by all counts, whether you like him or not. And he says that the greatest challenge of our time is automation. By 2030s, we'll be experiencing its full effects on our economy and our society. Tech can improve lives. It can also take away jobs. This is in large part how we have already ended up in a world where 78% of people are living paycheck to paycheck. Most new jobs are contract or gig work, and recent college graduates are drowning in debt while also being unemployed. Children experiencing depression and loneliness at record rates because of smartphones and social media and without understanding and getting ahead of much of this will end up at the mercy of big tech companies. We need to reevaluate the way we view our work, put people over profits and create an economy that works for us instead of the other way around. I fear it will happen if we do nothing, but I'm excited by what we could happen if we pick our heads up from the different screens and come together. I've talked about some of these issues. I talked about automation. I think it's huge. And I think the biggest thing he is saying is we need to, to wake up to so much of these things we're not focusing on. As important as, as being woke is and equality is, and some of these issues are, these social issues in some ways have to take a back seat to issues like how we're going to handle the world that we live in, how we're going to handle automation, robots, AI, how we're going to handle technology, how we're going to handle all these things that are not forever. We've been living in a world for the past 20 years where they have seemed like forever things. But as we understand them more, we realize that they're not sustainable. And I think that's huge. Alexander Skaggs is a financial journalist. And interestingly, she's going to talk about finances. So to quote, unless central banks decide to keep borrowing rates low indefinitely, by 2030, a roughly $12 trillion corporate debt bubble will burst and break the economy as we know it. And that's when things can get weird. Americans will have to legally declare themselves to be businesses in order to work, either contracting or for a few surviving conglomerates or selling directly to customers online. Top influencers will fare better, most likely raising millions of dollars in personal brand IPOs. But most workers will live at the whim of sprawling tech-led corporations, even line cooks and dishwashers, whose apps schedule them for ships with little notice. Bloggers and writers will try to survive by selling a la carte subscriptions through Facebook-owned platforms. A drive to organize incorporated bartenders will fail once the Supreme Court rules that violate antitrust laws by colluding to raise prices, a president that will effectively kill private sector unions. Only shareholder prudence and work solidarity will be able to keep full-time work a norm. But after the 2010s, who can count on that? This one's a bit harder to wrap your head around. But what Skaggs is trying to say is that we are going to have a burst soon. Imagine the housing crisis, but instead of it being housing, it's about work. And I think that's huge to think about. It's about the private sector. I think that it's unsustainable what we're doing. And when I talked about a gig economy and the benefits it could bring, it's also very easy to exploit a gig economy because there's no protections, especially if there's no unions. If we have no unions and we have no um, stability in our workforce, it's just individuals versus companies. And if you've ever looked at what some of the lawsuits against companies have ended with, you know that that does not usually end well for the little guy. I think it's important for us 
to keep in mind that and to keep diligent in the way we are communicating with businesses, the way we are expecting our government to run for us as opposed to for businesses. And in a big way, currently, so many things like the FDA and the um, environmental agencies and things don't cater to us the right way. They cater more to businesses because businesses make more money than we do. And so businesses are what's keeping our economy afloat. So I think we need to change our economy in a, in a different way. We have to look at economy differently or else some of this stuff just isn't sustainable. And we're going to find that we have the brunt of that to deal with. Population is also a big problem. Dembiza Moyo is an economist and the author of a book called The Edge of Chaos. And they say that forecasts suggest the world's population could reach a staggering 9 billion people by 2030, which is triple the population of the early 60s. 1960s, that is. Much of this increase will come from the poorest regions of India, South America, and Africa. Africa alone is expected to represent nearly half of the world's population by the middle of the century. And by some estimates, India is adding 1 million to its working age population every month. And if we don't place international cooperation over national self-interest, the world will be unprepared for this population explosion, which could become a catalyst for greater global conflict and dire implications for the economy, migrants, and environment of the world. Population is something no one really thinks about because population is one of those things we kind of put our hands up and say, oh, I can't fix that. I don't, I can't, how am I supposed to be in control of the population? People are having sex. You can't stop that. And you find that in certain areas of the world, more people are having sex and more kids are getting made every year. And again, we can't do this forever. Eventually, we're going to run out of land. We're going to run out of space. We're going to run out of housing. And who is it going to affect? The poor. It's going to affect people that can't really stop it. So as a result, we have to, A, teach extremely good birth pregnancy tests and uh, extremely good safe sex practices, especially for young people. We have to make it easy and able for people in poor regions to understand the consequences of unsafe sex and make it easy and cheap for them to have effective birth control that can help them to control their lives. And we also have to incentivize people to not just pop out kids. I think that's huge. So many people are uh, unhappy and they know that a kid is going to make them happier. But the impact of that too much can be very negative. I really hope we don't get to the point where we have to have limits on how many children can be in each household and things of that nature. But uh, it kind of scares me because at the same time, I know that that might actually happen. We might see single child housing be the norm if we run out of too much space. And it, other than that, we're going to see maybe complete hell holes in some of these continents that can't control their population. So we all have to work together to stop that from happening because no one wants to see Africa have two, half of the world's population. That's insane to think about. That number is staggering. And so we have to find a way to naturally stop some of those things from happening or find more effective ways for us to live so that we can all live in harmony as opposed to the uncertain future. And that's going to bring me almost to a close for the episode and to a close on the 2030s. Before I leave, before I say goodbye, I want to tell you guys a couple forecasts for 2040. This comes from quantum quantumrum.com who runs future analyses based off of a bunch of different concepts. But these are some figures about what 2040 is going to look like. And I'm going to leave you on this note so you can understand how different this world might look. Groups and companies like Nestle could potentially be inventing devices that designs meals around individual nutrient needs. The impact of this, again, is that concept of constant connection. The concept that we're going to let businesses decide what we need to eat. Something that could be cool 
but could have some dire consequences. Things such as memory implants and tech implants and health implants could become the norm. Having tech in our bodies to help us read our biosignatures, to help us increase lifespan, increase memory, things of this nature, tech augmentation is expected to be something we're starting to see more of. And if that scares you or reminds you of video games or movies that you don't like, keep that in mind as you vote, as you vote with your dollar and as you vote for your politics. Almost 60% of car sales will be electric by 2040, which is so much more than today, as so many countries have pledged by to the 2030s and the 2040s produce only electric cars or produce half electric cars, things of that nature. We're also going to find that the world population is supposed to surpass 9 billion. The average amount of connected devices per person is expected to reach 19. And the average amount of internet-connected devices is supposed to be in the trillions. An optimistic forecast it suspects that the rise in global temperatures is going to be 1.6 degrees Celsius by 2040, which is not something we should think about very happily. We're going to have age is going to shift down. We're going to have the largest age cohort for places such as Brazil and Mexico be in the 30s and the 40s. In places like Africa, however, it's expected to be between zero and five, which means more babies are being born every year by an astronomical amount, people alive older than them, which is going to, like I said, talk about the population boom. We're going to say in places like Europe and China and the United States, population centers are going to be in the 40s and 50s, a generally older population due to the fact that we have less birth rates. And it's important to think about what that means. Those are just a couple of, of many things we should look at for the future. Those are a few ideas about how emissions are going to be, about how cars are going to be, about how our population is going to be. The impact of that, we have no idea. So that, my friends, is going to conclude the first episode of the Nightcap Podcast, Season 3. This was kind of a crazy one. It was a little dense. I apologize if it was too dense. If you're still here, I want to say thank you for joining me. I want to say I look forward to seeing you for the next month and a half around there. I'm going to leave you with this. Think about the future for a moment. Think about what you know of the future and how what, what we can't expect. And to do that, I'm going to have you do something for me. Think about the year 1980, which was now 40 years ago. Feel old yet, Gen X. 1980 is a world completely different from today. There are so many issues from socially, culturally, economically that have changed in so many ways. If you think about how different tech was in the 80s compared to today, you'll understand what I'm saying. 2040 is most likely going to be as different as 1980 was. Decades ago, Ray Kurzweil said that technology increases exponentially as well as all sorts of evolutionary systems. And in that way, he's correct. As a result, we see an exponential curve and how fast time and electronics go hand in hand. And so what 40 years ago felt like is going to feel that way in 20 years. We're going to look back at 2020 like it's the 1980s. And as a result, if you think about that, you can start to grasp how different our world might be. But we have control over that. We can change that. We have the power to decide what we want 2040 to look like, as opposed to letting the world pass us by, letting companies have their way, and potentially seeing ourselves in a place of complete subservience and unable to escape it from companies, from governments, and more. I know that sounds kind of crazy, like a far, like it sounds like a, a movie or something of that nature, but I promise you it's closer than we think. It only takes a couple crazy decisions to make a country 
into something that it barely resembled so soon before. And so with that, I'm going to tell you to have a nice night. I'm going to thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Nightcap Season 3. I'm going to see you next Monday with the second episode. Thank you.